Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on January 12th, so we are not taking any listener calls or questions at this time. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the first program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is searching for common ground across the political divide. We'll talk about the political divide in the aftermath of the 2020 general election. Do we share any common ground? What's happening in America in 2021? What happened in America in one room, which our our speakers um, sponsored in 2019. How far have we come since then? And what lessons can we learn about American democracy in its future? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host today for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guest. First, Larry Diamond is the senior fellow at the Freeman's Bogley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of political science and sociology. Welcome, Larry. So happy you could join us. Thank you, Anne. And I just want to say it's such a pleasure to be with uh, people in Maine because Maine is such a leader in the search for common ground and political reform. Thank you for saying so. Um, James Fishkin is also with us. James is the Janet M. Peck Chair of International Communication at Stanford University, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy. Welcome, James. Hello. And um, finally, we have Steve Wessler. Steve is a Maine human rights educator, trainer, and advocate specializing in conflict resolution. Steve is also the host of Change Agents, a program here on WERU-FM that airs in this four o'clock time slot on the first Thursday of the month. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. So 2020 was a rough one, but 2021 is off to a pretty rocky start too. Even by comparison, the events of last week have shaken our faith in democracy and the rule of law in our fellow citizens. Each side thinks the other is delusional and living in a false reality. Both sides think the opposition spells the end of American democracy. There's no symmetry to insurrection, of course, but I mean, really, where do we go from here? Um, Larry, would you mind just putting the events of the past week into context based on the work you've been doing? And then we'll talk a little bit more about that work. Well, uh, thank you, Anne. Um, I think it's very important that we not talk about the events of the past week and the, um, the terrorist assault uh, from domestic extremist groups on the Capitol on January 6th in the past tense. Uh, it isn't over. Uh, we're facing the prospect of even worse uh, violence on January 20th or in the days before. Uh, we've been warned that every state capital, including that in Maine, could be at risk of um, violent extremist uh, right-wing uh, action. And um, we need to be very deeply sobered by this and very deeply vigilant. We've got a situation um, where the country has been sinking into deeper and deeper 
polarization and disinformation and um, where people are very deeply aggrieved uh, about their situation and have a tremendous sense of unfairness, loss of voice, marginalization, a feeling of losing control. And of course, this is happening uh, not only to Donald Trump's constituencies, but many on the left as well, and uh, African-Americans who felt socially and politically marginalized. But in the case of the Trump supporters uh, and the ones inclined toward the more virulent extremism, uh, extremism and disinformation, they've had their political leader feeding this, encouraging this, and I think pretty clearly inciting a mob to march to the Capitol and to use literally his words from the address um, that he gave on January 6th to the crowd, fight, fight, fight. You have, to, you have to fight to take back our country. And that's how they interpreted it. And we can debate if that's how uh, uh, Donald Trump intended it to be interpreted. It's bad enough when people um, are fed into uh, wild conspiracy theories by all of this uh, disinformation and um, manipulation that we have on the internet. But when political leaders exploit it for their own ends, it's particularly dangerous. Well, and so where does that leave us? How do we talk to our friends and neighbors who may be Trump supporters who... Um, I mean, I don't think I know anybody who actually was there at the Capitol last week, but I certainly know people who are fervent believers. And that sort of gets us back um, to the work you've been doing on deliberative democracy and you too, Steve, in conflict resolution and mediation. I mean, how do we begin to look at each other as human beings again after something like this? Um, who would like to go, Steve or James? Maybe maybe it would be good um, for you to introduce to people what um, America in One Room did and what um, made you even try it. Well, um, so Larry and I uh, were the um, leaders in a, um, um, a what is was both a social science experiment, but a political experiment about a year ago, September 2019, a little more than a year ago, um, uh, at the launch of the presidential primary season, we brought uh, a, a scientific sample of 500 and some registered voters, uh, meticulously recruited by NORC at the University of Chicago, who uh, it was a really good scientific sample of America. And we put them all in one room, hence the name American One Room, but under conditions where they could think together about the big problems facing the country, uh, immigration, health care, uh, the economy, uh, climate change, uh, foreign policy. Uh, uh, so, um, and lots of specific proposals about what to do. Some supported by the left, some supported by the right. Um, and in each case, we had, uh, we worked very hard to create a balanced agenda of, of um, 
arguments and factual background that was carefully vetted. Uh, the idea is, what would the people think under good conditions for thinking about it if they focused on it? Most of the time, most people don't have the time or effort uh, or make the effort to become informed because they've got other things to do. Social scientists call this rational ignorance. If I've got one vote in millions, why should I become informed? But America would be better if we did. But becoming informed is not just knowing information. It's learning to listen to other people. It's the habits of the heart, and it's opening up to trying to understand those who are from different backgrounds, uh, who may have different interests. And most of us, given the segmented life that we live, and this was, of course, before COVID, given the segmented life we live in filter bubbles, we don't communicate with the people who are very different from us in any depth. So the question is, what would happen if we did? And something very remarkable happened, which is, I think, why there was a lot of media at the time about it in all the major uh, media, which is people changed their views much more dramatically than we could have expected. And we discovered something that we hadn't um, actually anticipated. This, this event was a, what I call it, what we call a deliberative poll, a poll before and after people deliberate in depth and actually weigh the arguments and listen to each other in a civil way. Well, uh, uh, we are interested in the, the aggregate views, what the public really wants to do or what the public really thinks shouldn't be done. But when we broke it out by parties, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, we found something very striking, which was that the uh, really extreme partisan polarized issues, people moved very dramatically. For example, at the time, immigration was a really big issue. And 80% of the Republicans wanted to send all the undocumented immigrants back to their original countries. Uh, that would send back 11 or 12 million people all at once. And they had this idea about how they would get in line. And they had a lot of um, information that was not really correct about the role of the undocumented immigrants in the U.S., whether they pay taxes and various things like that. So there was some disinformation involved. Well, after deliberation, that 80% went down to 40%. That's a 40-point drop in public opinion. There were also some Democratic-leaning proposals that went down by 40 points exactly as well. These are gigantic shifts in public opinion. And what happened is people learned over the course of a weekend to listen to the other side and to consider their arguments and their interests. Um, and it's that habit of listening in a civil way. We had, These were moderated discussions, so people really couldn't insult each other, although um, uh, some of the discussions became rather heated. But then they calmed down, and people would realize that the other people on the other side, they had lives too. They had families. They had interests in getting medical care and um, the rest. So we think that deliberation is an antidote to extreme partisan polarization. The events in the Capitol are the most are a terrible manifestation, an extreme manifestation of extreme partisan polarization. But the polarization that we have is much broader than the people who might be violent. It's much broader. 
and you can see it in the polls in terms the conventional polls in terms of which offer snapshots of where the public is, but not where they could be if they actually could learn to talk to each other. So I'm a big fan of the League of Women Voters because you are committed to thoughtful and informed citizens who will think for themselves, right? I mean, that's the whole point, right? We do our best. Right. But you are, it's an uphill struggle because you are facing the the forces of disinformation, manipulation, and just sheer inattention. Uh, So people, uh, uh, political scientists have been saying, uh, uh, been writing under the title, The Myth of the Independent Voter. There are no more independent voters, supposedly. Everybody is a partisan. But we found that we have independent voters. Indeed, when we went back to that sample of 500, and we also had a control group, you see, who did not deliberate. Uh, so it was really a controlled experiment. We went back to them just before the election. We got dramatic results in voting intention among the deliberators more than a year later compared to the control group. So there was a a big shift to uh, Biden, uh, supporting Biden, a big realization about the COVID crisis among the deliberators. But the control group had the difference between Biden and Trump just about the way it came out, about four points. Right. but it was about it was uh, more than 15 points among the deliberators huh. because they became informed citizens and they were thinking about the covid crisis primarily and they were thinking for themselves and so we're now writing a paper about about that but th- this is not to say that when people think they're more likely to be democrats or more likely to be republicans no if they're independent voters who are really thoughtful they will think about the issues so we need to foster not just deliberative polls, but a more deliberative society in the schools, in among civic groups. We need to foster opportunities for people to learn to listen to each other in a civil way on the basis of good information. So that's one of the things that we are working on, Larry and I are working on at the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford in cooperation with all kinds of institutions. But I think deliberation is the cure. It may not be the cure for the people who are violent, but it may be an antidote for the broader population who need to uh, reflect on issues and to learn to listen to each other and to their legitimate concerns. So that's how I would, that's the, the connection I would make between America in one room and recent events. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is searching for common ground across the political divide. You were just listening to James Fishkin, who's the Janet M. Peck Chair of International Communications at Stanford University and Director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy. Also with us today is Larry Diamond. He's a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and also Maine's own Steve Wessler, human rights educator, trainer, 
and advocates spe specializing in conflict resolution. This program is pre-recorded on the 12th of January. No listener calls are being taken. Um, Steve, I want to give you a chance to weigh in based on your experience in terms of deliberation, conversation, listening, and its potential to heal the breach here. Uh, I want to say that you're description of your work is is really important. Um, uh, so I came back uh, from in December of 2016 uh, and just finished finishing a two-year project in in Europe and uh, was trying to figure out what to do and I decided I wanted to uh, create conversations between longtime Americans and immigrants. Uh, we were able to get um, funding from the Open Society Foundation, that's George Soros's foundation. And our, our uh, goal for this was to um, increase understanding uh, reduce the risk of uh, confrontational bias, harassment, and the risk of hate crimes. We, uh, between uh, 2017 and 2019, we did 20 to 25 of, of these in different parts of, of the state. Some, uh, some of them was included, a few of them was uh, dialogues between um, immigrant high school students and police officers. Uh, and the response was, uh, was similar um, uh, in that uh, people who came in having uh, hostile views or, or simply not quite sure what their views are left with information uh, about of what was happening. And what's, what's critical in terms of the work that I do is that before we uh, do the dialogues uh, in each of the cities that we've worked in uh, is that we had the assessment phase. So we went and we uh, did focus groups with longtime Americans, but far more with immigrants. Uh, and so that we could bring that information into uh, these dialogues. And when, uh, for the longtime Americans, realizing that the level of, of really disturbing bias, um, not just verbal, but physical as well, uh, I think what created the change was empathy. Uh, not only from what we brought in, but uh, in terms of um, from the assessment phase, but what um, what the immigrants had to say as well. And I guess the last thing I'll say is that people realized that they, um, when we asked them about really the important questions, um, what, what do you, you know, what were you taught about respect? Um, uh, what do you value about living in the United States? Um, if if you had simply had 
had read what they had said, you would not be able to tell the difference between who was an immigrant and who was a longtime American. That's so interesting. I mean, you three are making a really strong case for our common humanity and for meeting each other with an open heart one-on-one. In this moment, some of us are kind of afraid um, to meet people who are so angry. And also, I mean, this is a very individualized, you know, this is not one-on-one. I know you had 500 people or, and Steve, you've had groups too, but um, you know, how do, how could we possibly scale this up? And I, I also want to ask you about the role that our information ecosystem plays where we can consume whatever reality we want and never cross over the divide. So Larry, you, you pick whichever of those two questions you'd like and we'll see where it goes. Well, I want to start by talking about empathy, um, because uh, I think what Steve said is perhaps the key to uh, what we accomplished in Dallas uh, in September of 2019, and uh, the momentum that we seem to have uh, sustained uh, in terms of some important aspects of continuing depolarization among the participants. Um, I think it's a very interesting question how you cultivate empathy. Uh, This is something we should really think about. Empathy doesn't mean sympathy. It doesn't mean agreement. It means seeing the world through the eyes of your peer or interlocutor understanding what motivates them, the fears, the anxieties, the life experiences that contribute to the opinions they have, the anxieties they have, the beliefs they've developed and so on, and then searching for uh, common ground. And I think that we've, we uh, you know, demonstrated and I think developed uh, through the exercise of American One Room and through the application of a methodology that Jim Fishkin and his deliberative polling team have been applying um, in uh, you know, over 100 instances in the US and around the world, um, a mechanism for moderated, safe, trustworthy, fact-based, uh, vetted in terms of the information Uh, discussion of the issues uh, where people could engage, people could listen. We don't do enough listening in our society to one another, Uh, hear one another, um, deliberate on different points of view and um, weigh the issues in terms of not only the information we provided, but in terms of the life experiences that people were bringing to the table. I don't want to exaggerate the compliment. I'm not going to say that in each of our 40 groups, it worked, the small groups that we broke our 500 plus sample up into for discussion. I'm not going to say that it worked equally well in in every one of the 40 groups. But one of the great things we achieved uh, uh, in this exercise and that we think can be achieved in a broader um, societal deliberation. And we could talk about how 
a kind of mass scaling of this exercise could be achieved because we have ideas on that. We achieved a reduction in what's called affective polarization, that is emotional, broad, diffuse dislike of one another. Uh, and we think we achieved it because, um, you know, in the words of, uh, say, an African American participant, you know, I've never talked <laughs> to a white person uh, in this depth before, or maybe a white suburban housewife, I've never talked to an undocumented immigrant in this way before and heard their life experience. And it's when we can, I mean, Steve can elaborate on this and, and Jim, of course, has all the data and experience of our previous exercises as well. When we can sit down with one another and talk to one another as human beings and expansively discuss in mutually respectful dis, uh, 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 venues <clears throat> and ground rules, without a D or an R on our forehead, um, I think there are new possibilities to reduce the emotional temperature uh, and intense dislike that poison our politics. Do you think the experience, I mean, there must have been MAGA supporters there now. I don't know if there were QAnon people or, um, I mean, there must have been because you had American one room, you had a sample, right? Um, like, do you think those conversations would be different this year than they were last year? Well, um, you know, we did a follow up survey. Uh, uh, well, at least last year. Um, so when you say this year, do you mean 2021? Yeah, well, I mean, like now in the moment that we're in. Yeah, I think now we're at a fever pitch. Um, but it's it's very hard to know. Uh, and because um, while some people may have been driven to a new level of violence and intensity, uh, there's evidence that a significant portion of the Trump base, uh, you know, at least 30, 35 percent of it has been um, alienated uh, from President Trump uh, by his irresponsible uh, inciting behavior. And I think a much larger proportion is certainly horrified by the violence. So in one sense, there's worse polarization, but in another, the most um, uh, intensely polarized element is also, I think, uh, shrinking as a proportion of the public. Um, and I wanted to come back to something I think you were um, asking about, which is, um, can we make really significant change on these issues? And my worry is that when you go to funders, um, uh, a two-year a two-year grant is is a lot. Um, you, you need to we need to we need to to change change how we think that a nonprofit activities like what what you're doing in out of Stanford and what so many people are doing around the country. There, there, there needs to be, um, we're gonna fund this um, for X number of years. Of course, you're gonna to need to meet some, some standards along the way, but otherwise we're just gonna be uh, relegated to um, 
having really successful programs, uh, which simply don't reach enough people. Well, and I mean, I don't know if I read in the New York Times that American One Room, you had a $3 million grant. Did I read that right? Just yes, for that one well, event? Yes, but let, let me say something about that. That's because we, we made a great effort to recruit a representative sample. So we had people and we had to fly them in from all right. over the country. And we had to pay for childcare. We had to pay for um, help people who had disabilities. Uh, we had to, um, uh, 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 there are a lot of people who hadn't never been on an airplane. Uh, we had to bring them to one place. We had to house them. We had to feed them. Um, and it worked seamlessly. So of course it was expensive. However, um, we are also, and have been doing for a number of years, deliberative polling online. And in those cases, we just need to supplement the connectivity and uh, uh, because we can do it even with smartphones um, uh, rather than computers. And we subsidize the connectivity of those people. It's much less expensive because you, then you don't have to pay for the airfares and the hotels and the food. Well, so and how does that work, online deliberation? It's just You have small group discussions on, we've done some of them on Zoom, the way we're talking now, and they're moderated. And then you have plenary sessions uh, with the competing experts. It works exactly the same. Um, and we've done that in various countries. Uh, and uh, and we're in, uh, in the midst of doing it now in uh, Canada and in Chile. And we've done it in the UK and we've done it in the US. And we've got something else which is worth mentioning because we're focused uh, I mean, there, there is a question, as Larry, um, I think, implicitly implied, um, there is a question whether the affective changes, that the empathy that is so valuable as people really consider the interests of others, whether that works online as well as it does face-to-face. Mm -hmm. -face. Right. But we think, I think it does. Um, and uh, Larry, as my collaborator, has so usefully been slightly skeptical, but not sure. But we both agree it's something empirically we need to explore. Yeah. And so we will explore it. Um, and uh, so we're planning more of these projects uh, online. But we've also done something else, which is worth spending a moment on, which is um, with um, a Stanford team of computer scientists, and also my um, collaborator, Alice Hugh, who's the assist associate director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy, we've developed a, um, a platform for scaling the deliberations to massive numbers, potentially. So the automated moderator, as we call it, we've, I've been trying to think of a better name for it, but we don't have it. But what it does is it organizes a discussion of a dozen or so people. Uh, uh, and uh, it controls access to the microphone so nobody dominates. It intervenes when people are not civil to each other. Uh, it goes through an agenda of proposals and makes sure that the uh, people uh, discuss the competing aspects of the proposal, and it helps the group formulate a, a shared question for competing experts in the plenary sessions. And we, we've been using that now in deliberative polls and various countries, Hong Kong, uh, in Tokyo, and, um, um, and uh, with a national sample of high school students already. 
So, and it works really well. We've Larry and I have used it in our class with a, a freshman class where the students deliberate. So now we're planning to recruit additional groups of people beyond the random sample. And as long as they're diverse, um, we want to spread the benefits of deliberation and we're going to study it. But we think eventually we might have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. I mean, since it's online, we get appropriate uh, uh, partners to help do this, maybe millions of people deliberating. And we're going to study whether it has the same impact on people. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Larry Diamond, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institutions. Also with us is James Fishkin, Janet M. Peck, Chair of International, International Communication at Stanford University and Director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Maine's own Steve Wessler, human rights educator, trainer, and advocate spe specializing in conflict resolution. Our topic today is searching for common good across the political divide. This show is pre-recorded on January 12th, so we're not taking listener calls or questions. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. We're talking about um, deliberative democracy and the opportunity to scale it up. And I'm wondering, like, to really change the political culture in Maine, Steve, or in the U.S., like, how many people would we have to get involved and do you find that the people who participate take their change of heart back into the community and actually change the culture in their community? I, I think that that last point is really critical. And what really makes the change in the work we've done are the stories that come out. Um, and I remember in one city, uh, uh, I, uh, had um, there had been just really a, a remarkable thing that happened between uh, immigrants and and uh, longtime Americans and uh, and I was in that city quite a quite a lot and people would come up to me and say gee I, I need to tell you this extraordinary story which I actually had been there facilitating. And, and that, so the ability to increase the number of people, what we stress, talk about this to as many people as, as possible. Um, this is not something we want to stay quiet about. Um, is that something that you've done in your work too, Larry, where the 526 sort of shared the wisdom in their greater oh. surrounding or? Let me say, we have only anecdotal evidence on that. We know from people who volunteered uh, this that some of them went back uh, and shared their experiences with their uh, communities and um, spoke about it and wrote about it in their hometown newspaper. But now we get into the challenge that's been posed to us and that we are posing to ourselves of how you scale this up. And of course, if you scale it up to a mass level, 
of hundreds of thousands or, or millions of people, you aren't talking about polling anymore. Right. You're talking about random samples. You're talking about uh, trying, hopefully, to get people randomly assigned to small groups so they're mixing across um, ideological lines or even intentionally trying to induce the mixing, but getting as many people as possible. And we think, uh, uh, Anne, that uh, there will be a time as we scale this up and as more people and um, civic organizations, and we would love to partner with the League of Women Voters on this uh, uh, in, in individual states and nationally, uh, as they learn about this, that we can organize mass deliberation uh, through uh, the very promising instrument uh, of the automated moderator. Uh, and once you have that, and you, know, you don't need to have trained human moderators, um, there is almost no limit to how many people we could bring in. And I think two great uh, arenas for expansion are one, community organizations that might um, organize and convene online mass deliberations, and two, high schools, because after all, young people are forming their opinions and their prejudices in high school. And um, a lot of particularly uh, public high schools are diverse in uh, opinions. And uh, if they're not diverse because of geographical um, concentration of particular communities and points of view, we could bring you know two high schools together right. uh, yeah. in interaction. Uh, online. So there are lots of possibilities here. Did you find in Steve, in the work you've done, or James or Larry in your American One Room, did you find that everybody across the spectrum was equally interested in participating or were some more reluctant? I mean, like, I think they don't want to talk to me and they probably think I don't want to talk to them. But were there people that kind of didn't want to that had to be coaxed or how did you entice them to do it? Uh, I, so the you know, bringing in the immigrants was um, wasn't nearly as difficult as bringing in longtime Americans. Uh, in a number of these, we had um, uh, police officers and firefighters who were um, uh, asked by their supervisor to come. Um, I think they had the ability to to say no. Uh, so most most of the people decided that they wanted to come. Uh, but I think a lot a lot of them on both sides, there was a lot of of fear at the beginning um, because the stereotypes were going back and forth. I mean I remember when we got to the the the, the last of our of our dialogues um, we, we, we ended up bringing people together for a ses session. And um, three of the comments came from partners in this, from immigrants, who said they were, what they were so surprised about is how many longtime Americans really wanted immigrants to be in their community. Um, 
it's really it's getting people to start talking to each other and listening which is and your program just sounds like it's remarkable so to, about your 526 were they people equally um interested in participating what enticements did you have to offer were people afraid i mean in this moment lots of people are afraid of course some of them were afraid some of them were hesitant some of them were skeptical uh, and we had to use different arguments. Uh, your voice will matter. Uh, you'll enjoy it. Of course, we were offering them a free trip in the case of American One Room, uh, free trip to a nice hotel. Uh, we told them uh, that uh, other people who have done this have enjoyed it. We tried to make them feel that their voice would be listened to by others and they would be treated with respect. And that, um, and you know, uh, we we paid them something, and that was important for the the less well off. Uh, a lot of people returned the honorarium because they didn't need the money, um, or uh, actually uh, donated it to uh, appropriate uh, to other members of the group. Later, my my uh, uh, Alice Sue told me that in a follow up, she heard that a number of them. Um, uh, donated the um, the $300 to members of the group who were actually uh, impecunious. Uh, uh, so uh, there was a lot of uh, empathy around there. But we, so different, and in a, in, a, um, uh, uh, in a previous deliberative poll that we did, uh, a woman told me that she came because she thought there'd be hot water in the hotel. Um, and so, you know, you had all kinds of levels. And then another guy came in a private plane. So we, we represent different levels of society. Now, if we're spreading this, we have to, uh, we have to spread it uh, because it builds credibility and people find they like it. Uh, there's an old book about why Americans hate politics uh, by E.J. Dionne, and it's because they're likely to get insulted. But if people learn that there's a kind of uh, venue where they can actually talk to each other and better understand each other, it becomes very satisfying. So we often find anybody who goes through a deliberative process, uh, they're asking for reunions. Uh, now with random samples, that won't work, but with the broader scaling, it would work. We need to create a more deliberative society, which is why what Larry says about going into the schools, uh, partnering with civic groups, uh, we need to spread the habit of um, uh, deliberative discussion with mutual respect with uh, diverse others. Uh, because right now, everybody is in their own filter bubbles. They're communicating only among the like-minded. Um, and a lot of research shows that that leads to more extremity. And uh, that's, that's what's causing our problems, I think. And addicted uh, to outrage. I mean, they just get into their outrage cycle and they can't can't quite right. break out of it. I mean, right. is there any hope? We used to talk about the U.S. Senate as a deliberative body. Is there any hope that this kind of um, listening will come to our institutions as well as our... It will come to our institutions if it comes to the people. Uh, because the people will change the incentives for the institutional actors. And of course, there are uh, political reforms that could make um, uh, political actors more sensitive to the interests of all the people rather than just their base. And um, Larry especially has been doing a lot of thinking about this, but we're thinking about doing deliberative polling about those um, um, reforms. In Maine, 
you know, with ranked choice voting has done a very, uh, has been a leader. Uh, uh, but there are institutional reforms that can, that can um, uh, improve the political process. Uh, but those reforms need buy-in from the people, which is why deliberative polling is designed to show what reforms the people will buy into for what reasons and what, what reforms they think will not be plausible. I personally think we need a, a discussion of the Electoral College, uh, for example. I agree with all of that, and uh, nice to see you uh, celebrating when we mentioned ranked choice voting. And um, I have a hunch that if we had been able to do a statewide process of civic deliberation designed, uh, as we've discussed, uh, that the first um, uh, uh, referendum, the first voter initiative on ranked choice voting, in Maine wouldn't have been as close as it was, even though it passed. And um, because, but in any case, when you can, again, engage in mutually respectful civic dialogue with balanced briefing papers uh, and without having a signal, whether, you know, what your partisan affiliation is, just talking to one another as citizens, uh, people open up their minds and they do have more rational, <clears throat> policy dialogue or what Jim has called in his work thoughtful weighing of the alternatives on the basis of good information and respectful interaction. And so you look <clears throat> at alternatives to the current polarizing electoral system, alternatives like ranked choice voting. You look at um, <clears throat> the possibility of getting everywhere in the United States in elimination of uh, gerrymandering. You look at the possibility of what, after what we've been through, that maybe we should have fully nonpartisan administration of our elections, not only at the local and county level, but even at the state level. <clears throat> and you see uh, the potential for uh, an America in one room-like process, perhaps to uh, advance the process of uh, political reform in the United States? You know, I, I think that it is likely that it will be easier to do the work that I do as, um, based on what just happened in Washington. Um, I, so if, if I get a call from a principal, two principals at a high school and uh, one of them is a affluent uh, high school, which is, you know, 95% white. Um, uh, but they're having some some issues about race. And uh, the other high school is uh, very diverse. And there have been um, a couple of really violent fights. And somebody says, would ask me, well, which, which would I go to first? Well, I would... I would definitely go to the one where it's um, where the fights have broken out and there's a real danger of violence. <clears throat> and I'm, I would do that for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is I'm going to have a, I know I'm going to be more successful because almost every student in that school has one emotion that is the same and that is they're scared. Um, and um, so I, I think in some ways, I'm not talking about trying to bring in the people who, who, 
ravaged through the capital. But for the rest, this is, people are scared. And I think they're going to even be more willing to say, we need to meet in the middle. We can't, we can't sustain what's happened in the past week or what may happen on the next week. Yeah. I think this is a deeply insightful point uh, that uh, Steve is making. And I'll say, having sat in, <clears throat> as Jim did, on a number of the small group uh, discussions uh, in Dallas uh, in American One Room, I think one of the pe things that actually built empathy was that people pretty honestly shared their fears with one another about immigration on one side or the uh, other, about health care and you know what they're going through in terms of no health insurance or losing their health insurance, <clears throat> about the economy in terms of uh, poverty and joblessness and so on. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Larry Diamond, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institutions. Also with us, James Fishkin, Janet M. Peck, Chair of International Communication at Stanford University and Director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy. And lastly, Maine's own Steve Wessler, human rights educator, trainer, and advocate spe specializing in conflict resolution. This program was pre-recorded on January 12th, so we're not taking any listener calls this afternoon. Um, you know, people listening to this conversation are probably going to turn off their radio and think, okay, what can I do like right now um, that will contribute to um, more deliberative conversation among the friends that I know? Do you have advice for people to make it personal in their own lives? I would say one of those things is to listen. Um, and... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not very easy right now to um, ask somebody who you think is of a very different um, view of the political situation in the country. But to the extent is just to listen and, and hopefully that will be re reciprocated. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, um, uh, and in preparing our materials and all our communications, uh, for America in one room, including the, the policy briefings, the balanced policy briefings on different issues. We had a policy. Um, <clears throat> there were certain words that we were not going to use. And the words included Republican, <laughs> Democrat, Trump, Obama, Biden, Clinton, and so on. Let's put away all of the partisan triggers of our animus and suspicion and just talk about what we think, what we fear, what are our common aspirations? Where can we find common ground? Uh, I think if you get away from the partisan triggers and step back a bit to what our underlying values are, we'll see things we disagree with uh, and arguments that we might have, but also, you know, we might find common ground and then you know, uh, one of the things we had in Dallas that I think we can inject into um, mass deliberation, but that is difficult to do just if a few people are talking to one another, 
uh, is fact checking. Um, <clears throat> but fact checking is a skill that can be taught uh, uh, in terms of the use, uh, responsible use of the internet, how to get outside the um, information bubble and navigate more broadly around the internet to evaluate uh, information. So I'd say parallel with this, I hope the League of Women Voters and the schools uh, in Maine and other neutral non-political actors might help to um, not push specific sources of information, but push ways of evaluating and acquiring information uh, that can uh, perhaps limit our biases and expand our horizons. I, I think that's really important. And um, what we would do is uh, when we were talking about stereotypes about immigrants, we would simply ask the question, um, do you know, how many of you know a immigrant who, whatever the stereotype is, um, and, uh, and people would, would start telling stories and, uh, and those um, stereotypes uh, really imploded. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although I will say I've tried to fact check some of my Facebook friends and it hasn't worked out so great. But yeah. <laughs> if you just give people information, uh, they may not process it uh, because they're not really looking at it from the from the point of view of the other. Uh, but it's it's an important step. There's an old saying that conversation is the soul of democracy. And I think it's a certain kind of conversation that can be the soul of democracy that because democracy is ultimately about the will of the people and the will of the people is being strangled by disinformation, manipulation, all the arts of persuasion. Um, and uh, what we need to do is create venues where the people can really talk to each other and listen to each other and have a basis of good information. So that's what we're about at the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford with lots looking for partners all the time. So maybe we can uh, spread this um, with, um, with the help of even some of your listeners. I Thank really, you. yeah. I mean, you know, some of the, the community conversations we've tried to host, I think we've let people self-select those who came were those who were interested in it. And it sounds like from the work that you're all doing that we, if we, to be successful, we really have to work a little bit harder at bringing diversity into those conversations and providing incentives for people from across the spectrum to, to really participate. Um, we're starting to run out of time this afternoon. I want to give you each at least a minute to offer your parting thoughts. So Larry, why don't you go first? What are you, just a minute of uh, reflection. Well, I'd we say pass. we have not only had, I'll, I'll end where I began, uh, one of the most traumatic weeks uh, in the history of American democracy, but we are going to be going through a very uh, challenging period of polarization and potentially uh, violent mobilization. And I just think it underscores uh, the urgency of everything we've been talking about in the last hour. We have to pursue uh, mechanisms uh, to uh, reduce our polarization and build bridges across these divides. Easier said than done, but a huge aspiration for us all. James, what about you? Well, I, thoughts? Think, I think democracy is a matter of 
institutional design. And so we're trying to develop deliberative democracy where people share their reasons on the basis of good information and weigh the arguments um, uh, and listen to each other. We're trying to share a design that fosters that as an input to decision-making, not to replace our institutions, but to supplement them with um, the public will. Um, and uh, we seem to have had some success and, uh, uh, and I think people of goodwill will, will, it may not solve the, the problem of um, extremist violence, uh, but if we can deal with all the other people who are, may, if they're not thinking about it, be fellow travelers of the uh, most extreme, uh, we can diffuse it. And the important thing is to create a more thoughtful and deliberative society. And that's what we need to, that's what we need to develop. Uh, Go ahead, Steve. Just uh, one minute's worth is all we've got I, left. Uh, as soon as enough people have vaccine, uh, I'm going to be training others um, uh, to co-facilitate an immigrant and a longtime American and on a much smaller scale than uh, what the two of you are doing, but to try to ramp this up. Uh, and I, I think this is the time to do it. I think people know that we need, we, we can't go down the road that last week has uh, shown for us. A very sobering moment and a great resolve for the future. We are now out of time, but I wanna thank our guests this afternoon one more time. Larry Diamond, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Thank you so much for being with us, Larry. I'm James Fishkin, Janet Peck Chair of International Communications at Stanford University and Director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy. It was really great speaking with you, James. And Maine's own Steve Wessler, human rights educator, trainer, and advocate specializing in conflict resolution. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM streaming live at weru.org. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org or email us down east at lwvme.org. Coming up next, Counterspin, followed by Between the Lines on your community radio station, WERU-FM. Mm -hmm.